In the world of sex work, men are the usual buyers and often women are the people who provide those services. And I thought a lot about why that is. And usually I come down to the fact that if I ask many of my female identifying friends if they would go and buy these kind of things, they would say, well, look, I could get a queue of men around the corner all very willing to spank me for free. But then we think about that and then the two questions that crop up every time are, first of all, will it be any good? There's a thing about capability there. But the second thing, slightly more importantly for women who I know, is that what are they expected to do in return for that? What is a quid pro quo? Everybody, welcome back to Spanky Next. This is episode two of our recently launched podcast, and we're your hosts, Anna and Gregor. Second episode already, and we hope you liked the first one when we talked to Lola Jean about pegging. Each episode, we invite a king-positive guest to dive into their field of expertise. And we've been hearing really good things from the first episode. You guys have been reaching out to us in the community, but we want to hear more. We want to know what you'd like to hear next, what you're thinking about all the conversations. So hit us up on our Instagram page. It's at Spank You Next Podcast. Today's guest is Master Peter. He is one of London's most prolific pro dumps and he is head of curriculum of the BDSM training school. Ah, the BDSM training school, you say? <laughs> if you didn't listen to the first episode, the BDSM training school is an online educative portal led by vetted non-risk instructors on fetish.com. Fetish.com? Fetish.com. Who works for fetish.com, Anna? We work for fetish.com. So me and Gregor are friends, but we're colleagues at fetish.com. So you can go online, enroll in a course, everything from brat play to pegging to impact play to hair pulling. There's a lot of kinks on there to dive into. Yeah, and as we just mentioned, Master Peter is the head of curriculum of all of these courses. So he selects them, he kind of gets in touch with the educators. And yeah, I think he's a bit of an educational BDSM nerd, as he calls himself. Yeah, we're not just calling him a nerd. He self-identifies as a BDSM nerd. And he came to kink in quite a curious way, accidentally, actually, after teaching swing dance at an event in London. And now he is prolific. Yeah, who would who could have imagined that, no? From swing dance to BDSM, it's actually a short way. <laughs> who knew? It was the crossover we all need. <laughs> <laughs> and what's rare about Master Peter is being male and a pro-dom. Which basically means he accepts compensation for BDSM services and he caters to women and couples. Yeah. So this is something really special because we don't see so many women as clients in sex work. In general, I think we think men are the clients and female identifying people are the providers or people in the LGBTQ plus community. It's the patriarchy. It's the fucking patriarchy yet again. So Master Peter, he will explain why women actually might want to look for a professional to give them a really good spanking and to kind of cater to all their needs. Yeah, undoing the shame, but also making it safe. That's the other big topic of this episode, safety. So BDSM, risky. Risky. And and that's part of the titillation, right? Oh, totally. Oh my God, that's really what kind of gets you going. Can it ever really be safe? Can it? It can be as safe as possible, it can be safer, you can plan, you can communicate, but there has to be the understanding that it could go wrong. Yeah. 
So we have the sex work, the safety aspect of BDSM, and we have another fun topic in there, which is Fifty Shades of Grey. The word that shall not be spoken in the community. <laughs> we know how much people hate it, so we had to ask Master Peter, is it a help or is it a hindrance? Yeah, kind of. Be, we definitely see how this book helps bring BDSM into pop culture, but it also it comes with a lot of danger because some people have really, really wrong ideas of BDSM. It's a double-edged sword, for sure. You have it becoming a little bit more normalised, kink-shaming going away slightly, but you have Christian Grey, an abusive predator who came to kink through abuse, which is a trope we see time and time again, and that we try to get away from in saying that kink is nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, because in the end, the message of the book is a bit kind of your childhood trauma causes you to have non-normal sexual desires in your Mm -hmm. adulthood. And I think that's where it's so wrong. It's presented as a deviance. Yeah. Basically, the advice is chuck your copy in the fire if you have one. So yes, actually, this is something you should do right now. Throw out your copy of Fifty Shades of Grey. And instead learn the BDSM ropes from a pro like Master Peter. Let's dive in now. So, Master Peter, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you you very much. You are head of curriculum of our BDSM training school, which is on fetish.com. You are also a male pro-dom in London. We'd like to get to know you and your work a little bit better. So why don't you start off telling us how you came to BDSM and the line of work that you do now? Yeah, sure. I guess it's safe to say I've always been curious about kink, but I first got into it in serious forms, maybe about 11 or so years ago, 11 or 12 years ago. And I ended up performing at an event which I had worked at for several years as a swing dance instructor, which is one of my other great hobbies. And it was a masquerade ball. It held in London. It still happens today. And they would always have a dance class at the beginning of the night, and I taught a swing class. And the rest of the night was dancing, cabaret, burlesque. There would be a some knife drawing, a menagerie with lizards and snakes you could play with, that kind of thing. And they always put me in a room which had lots of BDSM furniture in. And it was always very curious and perplexing to me because it wasn't that kind of event. People would come in, they would jump on the furniture, take a photo, giggle a bit, and that was it. So the room wasn't Um, really used for the party? It wasn't used for the party, but the organiser had got the furniture because they thought it was a bit edgy and a bit fun and a bit curious. So I said to the organiser one day, look, why don't we do something different with this space? Why don't we run it like a a bit of a a kind of a dungeon? Why don't we put on a bit of a show, nothing too serious, just make it slightly more interactive? And she said, oh, that's a great idea. Sure, go and do it. And I was like, shit, I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) So a typical bloke thing to do, I effectively warranted confidence that I had no right uh, you know providing so I did the responsible thing and I went and found a dom who trained me so I, I embarked on a course of training that initially was just to do this kind of this performance so initially it was going to be just a few weeks but as I got into this process I was like this is fascinating 
And a lot of the stuff really resonated with me. I find it super connective. I found it super, just really fascinating. So I ended up doing a lot more training than I needed to for this event and just kind of really absorbed as much as I could from this, this Dom and some of her friends. And then when it came to the actual event, when people would come in and start interacting with the furniture, then I'd offer them the opportunity to be kind of attached to it properly and then maybe receive a gentle flogging or something like that. <laughs> and suddenly there was a queue of people at the door because it turns out everybody is a little bit curious about kink. And then um, people would start coming up to me and saying things like, can you teach my boyfriend how to do that? <laughs> um, or can you teach my husband or my girlfriend? And then other people would come and say, I really want to do this, but I don't want to do it at an event in front of other people. So can I come and see you privately? So of course I was like, uh, yes, 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 you can. And uh, before I knew it, it had just kind of snowballed into, into a career. So it started very much part-time and accelerated over the years. And I've been doing this for, for 10 years now. And for the last several years as a full-time occupation, and have added onto the kind of the private sessions and the coaching full-scale workshops. And some of those are in abridged form on the BDSM training school. I've also been helping to run spaces at kink events, either looking after the dungeon from a monitoring perspective mm. or being the house dom and introducing people slightly more interactively <laughs> to the dungeon. <laughs> And yeah, and also getting involved in the scene safety aspects of things. So I also teach a workshop for people who monitor kink spaces at events as well called PlaySafe. So you really started three months training going into it. I, I guess you were probably quite nervous. Yeah, were you nervous? <laughs> I was super nervous, but I had, I, you know, I had a kind of a, a cloak of security, which was that I was doing a performance initially and I created a character for myself and, you know, the character was a lot more confident than I was, yeah. <laughs> it's safe to say. And, and you know, I've, I've since abandoned that character and, and, and I'm really just kind of myself doing, doing my thing these days. So let's talk about you being a male pro-dom, which is a male professional dominant. Um, and for anyone that doesn't know, it's, it's taking on clients in return for compensation in a professional context. Is it rare to find a male pro-dom? Because I think we often think of dominatrixes and I think that's been overrepresented in culture at large. It's, I wouldn't say it's overrepresented. I would say it's represented in direct proportion to its occurrence. So, yes, it's incredibly rare to find male prodoms. It's even more rare to find male straight prodoms, actually. Mm. When you find male prodoms out in the wild, often they're men who work with men. Yeah, that's I'm a man yeah. who works with women. Yeah. yeah. So... So yes, it's rare and it's not represented in society at all, really. I think there's good reasons for that. You know, in, in the world of sex work and, and doming is, is sex work, even if I don't have sex with people, you know, men are the usual buyers of sex work and often women are the, the, the people who provide those services. And I thought a lot about why that is. And usually I come down to the fact that if I ask many of my female identifying friends if they would go and buy these kind of things, they would say, well, look, I could get a queue of men around the corner, all very willing to spank me for free. But then we think about that. And then the two questions that crop up every time are, first of all, will it be any good? There's a thing about capability there. But the second thing, slightly more importantly, for women, 
who I know is that what are they expected to do in return for that? Mm-hmm. What is oh, a quid pro a quo? Point. Exactly, yeah. like the unsaid transactional nature of that act. Yeah. Absolutely. And and what if she just wants what she wants and without having to do anything in return? You know, where does she get that? Well, that's where where people like me kind of step in. And I accept money specifically on the basis that they then don't have to think about that no. quick program. It's a service, basically. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, you just said that you don't have sex in your sessions. Do people know this when they approach you or do you get it a lot that people also, you know, because you said uh, pro-doming is a form of sex work, even though there's no sex in the traditional sense involved? I think I try and make it very clear on, on my external presence, you know, what I do and what I don't do. I think doming is well established as something that by default often doesn't involve sex. However, there are sex workers who provide a full service doming service and they will sleep with their clients. So of course it's, it's kind of muddies the water. So yes, there's inevitably people who come and, you know, think that they're going to be spanked and then fucked. And I have a fucking machine for that. So that's a good news. It can still happen, but it's just not going to be me. Exactly. Outsourced to the robots. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So go back to the idea that, as you say, hetero male doms are quite rare to find. Mm. And for the reasons you mentioned, do you think it also has something to do with the shame around female sexuality still, that this is something that women would want, but it's not offered to them? And maybe women feel a little bit uh, shyer or they don't feel like there is this access to paid sex work or doming? I think it's a combination of those things, undoubtedly. I, I think, first of all, you're right. I think there are many people out there who don't even know this exists, wouldn't even be able to kind of conceive or imagine that this is a possibility for them. And then when they do understand it exists, the whole concept of it and the anxiety that is attached to to that, like going to a strange man they've never met before and putting yourself in an incredibly vulnerable position, is not something that people are going to just do at a drop of a hat. And Men buying sex work can be a very kind of instantaneous, you know, instant gratification kind of thing. Like people mm-hmm. will go and like find somebody for later that afternoon. I find many of the women who come to me have been thinking about it for weeks, if not months. I had one person who said that they've been kind of like hovering on my website for the last two years wow. and, you know, and then finally decided to get in touch. So it's, you know, the planning process is immense when it comes uh-huh. to women. What do these people say after a session, kind of after planning or thinking about it for over a year? Yeah, so my process involves asking people to go away, have a great night's sleep, and then give me some feedback the day after and Mm -hmm. get in touch and give me a little bit of a debrief. So after every session, I get this lovely email the next day telling me what their experience was. And weirdly, it's one of the favorite parts of my job, actually, because it's where I hear about you know, the impact, no pun intended, I've had <laughs> on them. And, you know, it's, it's overwhelmingly positive and, and people talk about feeling more free, feeling unencumbered, feeling like they've been reset somehow, feeling like they now have a vocabulary to ask what they want in their own relationships or in future relationships, that kind of thing. So it's honestly, it's a privilege of my life to be able to actually be doing that kind of thing with people. Wow, that sounds Um, really beautiful. Yeah. 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 So you work with female identifying clients and couples, right? Yes, I do. And and I... um, 
Uh, I wouldn't say I would never work with somebody who's more male favored. And I think the the reason I don't is because there are other service providers who understand what men want a lot better. Gay professional doms who understand what a man wants from that kind of context in a way that I, I probably have less less empathy for based on my own kind of persuasion. I'm very happy to to do impact play scenes with men. I do it all the time at clubs and at events. I think if you're going to come and spend like 90 minutes, a couple of hours with me in a much more intimate setting, then, you know, then what I need to do is establish boundaries. One of those boundaries being that not only do I not have sex in my sessions, but I'm not going to necessarily play with sexual energy with a male client because I, I'm not sure I know how to. <laughs> and I don't accept money for something that I genuinely feel very competent in. So I, 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 of course, play with sexual energy with clients who are women, if that is an energy that they want to play with. And in some cases it is, some cases it isn't. But with men, I draw that line. So I tend to work with women. Fair enough. And what are people getting going pro that they wouldn't get if they just... For example, went on to fetish.com and met someone that is a dom, but they're not pro. Yeah. What can you get? This, yeah. So so first of all, they get focus on them and their needs rather than a kind of a barter, a barter type system where like everyone needs to get something from it um, to make it a, a rewarding experience. So I think that's the first thing. I would hope that people who are into kink and BDSM understand the importance of getting it right and not Mm. fucking up because it can be it can be something that can go incredibly wrong without you know really thinking about it without great consent practices without informed consent particularly so i would hope that people have great experiences with people that they find on places like fetish.com providing everybody's taking personal responsibility for giving and receiving boundaries properly and consent and take the the effort to learn what they're doing which this, comes back to yeah. the training school right that's what it's rare to do this makes actually so much sense because i've heard so many stories of people who kind of expected to kind of take part in a bdsm scene and then after that they said what the other person wanted to get out of this was just rough sex so mm-hmm. kind of, you know, I think that there's a lot of wrong expectations and um, it's what you say, you know, kind of going with a professional, it gives kind of a layer of safety to your yep. experience. I, yeah, absolutely. Because if, you, if you're not safe as a professional, then I think your career comes, you know, slamming to a halt incredibly quickly, right? You just can't sustain it. And I've, I think that's why kind of male pro doms actually have to be so incredibly important because we're, we're, we're kind of like, you know, we've, we've got the weight of, of all male pro doms on our shoulders, really, when we do what we do, you know, because the second a male pro like fucks up, does something bad, you know, makes a mistake, then, then we're, I, I think we're makes, probably Yeah, all, it makes everybody look bad. Yeah. We're all done. Yeah. Is there is there kind of a, a community of pro doms in the UK? Do you kind of do you know kind of people who are also pro doming? Yeah, so I've gotten increasingly involved in the kink community in in and around London and and further afield actually places like New, New York as well. And there is definitely a community. I find a really fun dynamic of networking with other doms. There's things like DomCon where doms get together and actually go and learn together and share things with each other. So. I love it. It's like Comic-Con for doms. 
Isn't it a bit one-sided if it's just DOMS? I, I think, yes, it's a bit one-sided. But at the same point, we need to do it at some point. Yeah. Right? We, we need we need, we need We need to kind of understand that there are other people who do what we do and, and you know, network with them and learn from them and, and share what we know as well and, and develop, you know, standards for what we think and, and how we represent that to, to, to the external community as well. Speaking of which, you won Best Master at the UK Fetish Awards in 2020, right? Yes, I did. The only good thing to happen in 2020, pretty <laughs> oh, much. Oh, <laughs> true, true. How did that feel? It felt, uh, it felt incredibly humbling. Uh, it was, of course, really, uh, it was a wonderful thing to happen. It almost didn't happen in a way that you'd expect it to, because when I was nominated, somebody nominated me for, for the awards. But when I was nominated, uh, there wasn't a category called Best Master. And I got an email one day saying, you've been nominated for Best Dominatrix. Oh, <laughs> oh I can imagine that went down. Before. I was like, you what? Uh, so <laughs> I was I was quite surprised about this. And oh. not only was I surprised, but lots of dominatrices were, were surprised because one of the frequently asked questions on the award site suddenly became, why is there a man in our category? <laughs> <laughs> and they realised that, you know, if people were nominating male pro-doms, maybe they needed a, a male pro-dom category. category. So they wow. created one. Uh, several other wonderful male pro-doms were nominated. And, and you know, so I was... I was um, privilege to be the first the first ever mm. one to 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 have won that that particular award so it's mold breaking in a sense and and i'm really glad that it happened because now it's just raising awareness of the fact that men do this work and, it is uh, and also i think it's also raising awareness that there are female clients or female identifying clients mm. and i think that's the important thing because when anna told me about you winning best master and this whole category being created basically. I thought, yeah, but where's the story there? Because we need kind of, we need to empower women kind of, we've had already a lot of stories about empowering men, but the story here is really, that is, it's about it's women about being em- empowered. Exactly. About empowering female sexuality. Exactly. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that like we know from broader society is that, you know, everything in mainstream society is pointed towards men as a consumer when it comes to sexuality. The amount of money and research and development that goes into things like Viagra, but doesn't go into kind of like female libido, is just shocking. It's absolutely shocking. So, you know, why can't we kind of, you know, do better and start talking about female sexuality as something that should be celebrated, but also services, better services, better products should be provided for it. And not just things that require batteries. I do see you being in the category with female dominatrices also. I can see why there was probably some tension there. What was the pushback like? Was there a reaction? Did some women feel that there was this man coming into a space which was for them? I think inevitably um, some did. I didn't experience any of it personally because it wasn't directed at me. It was directed probably at the awards, which is why they, they, they put something on their site about it. I can only imagine that some people felt it was inappropriate for me to be in that category and I absolutely support them mm-hmm. in, in, in that. I think femdom and, and female, female doms, women doms, I should say, I don't like using the word female. It makes me think of Quark from Star Trek Deep Space Nine or something. <laughs> Um, uh, women, women, 
women doms, some of them are very much in the kind of a camp of female domination because it's we're, we're, we're basically kind of inverting the patriarchy, right? And we're kind of taking back power. Mm. And therefore, to have a, a man who is a kind of a power wielder, for want of a better term, in, in a kind of category where it's a community of, you know, fucking the patriarchy is, 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 is maybe an unwelcome thing. Yeah. And I totally get that. Uh, we're talking before about why has the dominatrix been so popular in mainstream and popular culture as iconography? Mm. And like you say, it's almost because it's the inverse of the patriarchy and women being in these positions of power where they can dominate men. But it's kind of sad that it's so popular because it's so rare and people yeah. see it as yeah, not in, the norm. Exactly, because for men often it's it's a fantasy and it's kind of sad that it has to be a fantasy exactly. that a woman has power. Yeah, and, and you know, the cliches are, are really truisms. You know, the male like company director like crawling around on his hands and knees and drinking from a dog bowl and stuff. Mm. You know, they it, it's not just that they want to see women with that power, it's also that they want to experience the lack of it, that they might you know, have a privilege to have never experienced in their day-to-day life. It happens without women as well as because of women and their place in society. True. It's like the true surrendering of your male privilege. Let's move on to the educational aspect of the work you do. I know you've even said to me before that you're a little bit even geeky about the educational (laughs) aspect of BDSM. So why is it so important to you that people play safely and informed and people get educated i think one because it 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 builds a better community of people who are having better experiences with each other and i think I, i think that just benefits everybody i think secondly i think it's because we are a marginalized group in society people who are kinky and people who are fetishists and i think in order to claim claim more space and not to suffer all of the ridiculous things that society places on us. So, for example, in the UK, depictions of spanking is now banned in in video content, which is just nuts. And also face-sitting and female ejaculation are most of the things that women want. So a lot of this stuff is, is, is taboo and therefore, you know, receives attention when crap laws are being made. And I think, you know, the, the more we can have really good behaviors and learning and development of, of our craft and be able to show people that, you know, this is not just people doing like silly, dangerous things like in dark corners of the underbelly of society, but it's actually people who care about doing things well and care about each other mm-hmm. and care about important concepts like consent and stuff. I think that's that's where we begin to kind of claim more space back. And for example, this year, for the first time, organizations like Club Verboten, which I run the monitoring team for, and Torture Garden and institutions in in the UK have actually received government money. Can you believe it? Government wow. money as part of a kind of a culture cultural rescue plan. Oh, so wow. from the Arts Council of England mm-hmm. to, to to actually kind of you know remain open and still doing what we're doing. That's just like. You know, that's groundbreaking when you think about it. It's very anti-English because we hate sex. (laughs) (laughs) But really kind of it shows some acceptance, no, doesn't it? Yeah, Yeah, it does. It it, it shows that like perceptions are changing, BDSM and fetishes becoming slightly more 
acknowledged in the mainstream. And I think that's the good, a good thing. Go I hate it. to ask the most basic question, but do you think Fifty Shades of Grey has helped <laughs> destigmatize it? I know everyone uh, hates it in the community, but like, is it true? If if I honestly, if I had a pound for every time somebody's asked me that question, Anna, I think I would. <laughs> basic, um, I told you. I'd at least have like triple figure. So in my bank account. So here's the thing with Fifty Shades. Yes, it raised awareness of BDSM. It did it in a really kind of crap way, mm. in my opinion. I'm Christian Grey. Mm. Christian Grey, the protagonist of, of Fifty Shades, is an abusive arsehole. Right. And I, I just want to, mm. you know, just for anyone out there who, who, who didn't get the memo, you know, he's a stalker. He harasses. He doesn't kind of, his consent practices are crap. And he also is a kind of, you know, this cliche of somebody who had trauma in their childhood. Yeah, some people who are into BDSM have had trauma. A lot of us have had trauma. But, like, not everybody has got this kind of cliched thing that happened to them as a kid, you know. Mm. And and it, it, it just paints a really kind of very two-dimensional and very uninformed expectation of what kink is all about. So there, I, I firmly believe that there are two good uses of Fifty Shades of Grey. One is 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 firewood if you really need to. Um, but the second, I discovered when I was hired to be a Catholic priest at an event and they gave me a confessional and I made people kneel down when I wasn't taking confessions and I preached to them from Fifty Shades of Grey as a punishment. And, um, <laughs> love it. I love the vitriol in the community about this book. Yeah, it was great. I only found one person who liked the book and then I spanked her with it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> love yeah. it. But I think it's really true. It really pathologizes BDSM. You know, it, it makes yeah. it that if you had trauma, that's why you're into BDSM. Yeah. But I ask it just because I know some people have said, oh, I think I'll try kick because I read that's this it, one I book. Think, yeah, in a way, it really has brought BDSM into popular culture, but in a really bad way. Because I don't know if it really cleared up the, a lot of stigmas or if it even added some to it. Them. Yeah. It's a double-edged sword, right? You know, yes, maybe some, some more people have got into it and maybe hopefully they quickly found what was wrong with the book as they went on that journey. Mm. And that's a good thing. At the same time, you know, people will have read it, not found the community, just gone, oh, great, wonderful. Now I can kind of grab people by the throat and, like, you know... And, push them into things like, or write a contract and then not understand consent is fluid you know and it goes out of date the second that it's signed and i'd hate to think that people out there signing contracts because they read it in a crap book yeah. and then feel like they're like suddenly now kind of bound and governed by that and can't retract or change their consent and things like that there is a potential for harm you know yeah. Um, which nobody who created a film or wrote the book ever really took responsibility for. No, yeah. in a way, it's you know, like I've you never... could use it as a manual for what not to do. Yes, yes, you could. Absolutely. It, it, and it's a great, great way of actually demonstrating to people that there's a wrong way to do things. So maybe it's a good teaching aid, but yeah. it's not a good entertainment aid where there is no follow-up around what's problematic about it. Hmm. I like when you said that um, consent is fluent, because I can really see that, that sometimes you might be really into something, but in the moment it's happening in the session, for various reasons, you're not okay with it anymore. And then it's, of course, important to communicate that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why 
safe words exist, but also other kind of forms of giving feedback that allows people to kind of change direction. Oh my um, God, that's that's so true because I think safe words are sometimes so one-dimensional. It, it's, it's a safety mechanism, not a really good communication tool for much else, which is why, you know, first of all, you had red and then people were like, well, let's have amber. And amber is a great way of saying I'm coming close to a boundary. And then the person who's topping can then kind of pay attention to that and decide to to respond to it, for example. But there's lots of other ways to provide feedback that doesn't just involve those two words. Yeah. I'm actually really, I really admire people who can tell when they're coming close to a boundary because also in my, in my personal <laughs> life, I only know it when a boundary is crossed. Oh, me too. You That's know? because we're super like unreflected people sometimes in our life. We just yeah. go through with chaos. And and I think that when in one of the um, sessions I did for the training school and I talked very briefly about the kind of the attributes of a good dominant you know, some of the things that I talked about in that were, was about compassion and empathy, which are not words you necessarily expect to hear when you're talking about kind mm. of dungeons and people being beaten up for fun <laughs> and things like that. But actually the empathy bit and the observation skills that come with it, you know, to be able to tell like changes in people's breathing or what they're yeah. doing with their shoulders or, you know, what, what faces they're pulling, you know, those kind of things are, are so incredibly important you know, to be able to deal mm. with people who who don't know the boundary until they've crossed it, mm. right? Yeah, so we have been using SSC a lot, uh, which mm. for anyone that doesn't know is safe, sane and consensual in a BDSM context. But now it's more du jour or you propose to use RAC, which is risk-aware, conscious kink. Can you explain a little bit about the move away from SSC to RAC? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a discourse which has been happening for several years now amongst people who are talking about kink from an educational perspective. And I think safe, sane and consensual is kind of an almost hallowed artefact of the kink community, right? So, you know, the history is, is it was developed by the Lever Council in a way to kind of like legitimise, you know, kink practices and be able to have this discourse we've already talked about with the external world about why we do what we do and how we do it and why the ethos means that we shouldn't all be arrested. You know, as, as time has gone on, we have evolved our thinking about what safety actually means in kink and what consent means in general terms, not just in kink, but in life as well. And also where does mental health and that kind of thing sit within all of this? So what was, what was really important and, you know, great 20 years ago is not necessarily brilliant and great today. So, the, the issues that some people have with safe, sane and consensual is, first of all, nothing is safe. Calling something safe doesn't provide for the fact that things can go wrong mm-hmm. and things things will go wrong sometimes. All we can have is safer. We can have practices that make things as safe as possible. But a BDSM space is not a safe space. It can only be a safer space. So we don't. I, I don't want people to come into this community or into um, a BDSM uh, scene or relationship or anything else and feel like, oh, but safe, sane, and consensual, yeah. everything's safe, right? Because yeah, can there's personal me. responsibility to to understand that mm. that you you can do as much as you can, but it will never be 100 percent safe. And then secondly, sane, what does sane mean? And who is actually qualified to really 
uh, define it. Now, the kind of context behind saying is around is around several things. It's around kind of, you know, sobriety sufficient that, you know, that you can consent and all of that important stuff. But most importantly, it's about understanding the difference between truth, um, truth and fiction, you know, and actually really being able to grasp reality. And, and, and that's an important concept, but calling it sane is, is a really crappy way of, of describing it, in my opinion, and in many others' opinion these days. And I think making space for neurodiversity, making space for people who, who may at one time or another have experienced uh, you know, some challenges with their mental health, means that that's not a word we should be kind of banding around. And that's where risk-aware consensual kink comes from. It's, it's, it's really encapsulating the fact that consent is still there and it's still incredibly important and the most important thing. But the way that we do what we do is about being aware of the risks and accounting for them in our practices. Uh, and and I, think, I think that's, that's the direction that the community and the, the, the thinking around BDSM is heading. When it comes to the word sane in SSC, don't you think this might have to do with the fact what you mentioned earlier, that there is kind of this stigma from the outside that lots of people who practice BDSM have traumas or the, um, and that people kind of just wanted, you know, to distance, distance exactly. them, themselves from that. I, I, I think I think that's in there, definitely. I also think that it's fundamentally a kind of, you know, a, a reaction to people's concern that BDSM is actually genuinely just beyond the realms mm. of, of, of sanity in itself. Like, you know, yes, we're kind of like whipping and caning each other sometimes and things like that, but we're not kind of dismembering our partners and like you know wearing their head as a hat yeah, yeah. Know, and, and things like that we're not going into those kind of absurd realms that i think sometimes people think maybe we're doing when they're on the outside and they're scared can bdsm ever be safe can it ever be safe um i <laughs> <laughs> I, I got out of bed too quickly this morning and I, I had a head rush and I, I pretty much fell on the floor. Um, if getting out of bed is not yeah. always safe, how could BDSM be? Do you know what I mean? I, I, I find it, I, I just can't talk in absolutist terms about, about, about anything and why should BDSM be any, any different. So no, it can't be considered safe. It can be considered as safe as possible and well-managed and um, well-understood and well-practiced. But safety is an unfair misnomer, mm. I think. We've already mentioned the BDSM training school on Fetish.com a couple of times in this podcast. So yeah. you're head of curriculum. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this project, how it came into being, what your role is? I think I got a really intriguing email one day saying, hey, we want to find people to do kind of training courses. This was actually our colleague, Mark. And um, just today, when I had a look at your website, I, I said to Anna, how did Mark find him? Because He's just such a good match for the training school. And yeah. Yeah, we did really good research and you 
came together. Yeah, he did. He, he actually found some of the slightly more public workshops that I do. I do a, a workshop called Gentle Introduction to Kink and BDSM, which I actually have on a general events platform where you can also find interesting things like goat yoga and oh. like street art tours and things like that. And he found that and and thought, okay, this this looks interesting. He got in touch with me. We had a discussion and like very quickly I started asking kind of challenging questions like, you're just approaching people on the internet. How do you know what they're teaching is any good? How do you know that their content is 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 appropriate? You know, like what's your quality control thing? And and as we got through that conversation, I somehow wound up being partly accountable for all of that kind of stuff. And the rest, as they say, is history. So I've, you know, we've we've got a small but perfectly formed card of fantastic coaches and educators on on the site now. That will that will increase, but we're being very picky about it. So that's a kind of a background to it. And we went kind of live with it in external terms. And when I say external and internal, I, I'm talking about people who are already in fetish.com and um, and love using the site as a kind of a dating site and a, a community site and people who might just stumble on a training school from anywhere. Anyone on the internet had never intended to sign up to a fetish dating site, but love the idea of learning. You were all welcome as well, whatever your objectives are. Mm-hmm. So, so we went live with that a few months ago, the beginning of this year. Yeah, so- there, there is even a free taster course, which kind of you're doing about hair pulling. Yes, absolutely. So uh, it it sounds like a a weird thing to do a training course on, but I can promise you there is an epidemic of mediocre hair pulling going on out there. I I would believe that. Yeah, I can can sign that because I I learned a lot. I didn't know how to do it right before. No, I I have to admit I've never thought about doing it uh, as a course before, but you can learn a lot. Yeah, and and you know, I do I do an actual twenty minute course on it. I think the taste is about five minutes, and I've tried to cram like twenty minutes into five minutes. It's not that hair pulling itself is such a central practice to BDSM, but actually, that the concepts involved in hair pulling are actually about putting together amazing power dynamics and kind of interacting with somebody in a really kind of intense, intimate kind of fashion. So it's a proxy for everything else we do in BDSM which is around being permitted control over another human being and developing a really juicy dynamic with them. Mm. You also do a paid course on impact play. What can people expect from your course? Well, the the, um, the course on impact play is something I'm developing at the moment for fetish.com. I do it elsewhere as a live course and often as a kind of an in-person course. I think impact play is some of the basic tools of BDSM. A lot of people get into BDSM via impact and therefore, you know, and, and, and also it's one of the things that has got the greatest opportunity for, 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 for risk as well, you know, because people are genuinely kinetically hitting each other. Mm-hmm. out there with with their hands or other things so i think it's a super important thing to learn how to do well and also just like there is an epidemic of mediocre hair pulling there is an epidemic of mediocre spanking going on out there um as many people listening to this will be nodding their heads right now as we um, are i know people as, as that, you, but we are <laughs> as as you are too and the issue is that like until somebody teaches this stuff all people have to go on is what they saw in a dark corner of Pornhub, yeah, where like a couple true. of people are having 
relatively vanilla sex and doing some lackluster bum slaps whilst they're doing it. And it's just it it's just it's just not good enough. So so that's why why that course exists for people to understand how it can how you can have a whole hour of of impact play and it instead of being kind of monotonous being just a roller coaster of fun talking of epidemics we're coming out of the pandemic we hope what do you think the prospect of the BDSM world is post-COVID. Do you think people are going to be looking to explore their sexuality and, I guess, human connection, which BDSM is more post-pandemic? I think so. I think I think there will also be a little bit of caution. I think people will have slightly forgotten what it's like to do some of these things, particularly on the event side of things. It's going to be really interesting. I think there will be some people who are just not going to go. And, you know, the idea of suddenly being in a space with lots of people is just too much. But there's going to be a lot of other people who have got a whole kind of year plus of frustration pent up. And I'm wondering whether I should equip my staff with riot shields um, (laughs) in the playroom. I don't know what it's going to be like, but like, you know, if you're in London, please come along. And if police brutality is your kink, it'll probably happen. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, on that note, tell people where they can find you and if you have any social media. Sure. So my website is masterpeter.co.uk. You can find me on Instagram, masterpeterlondon, and on Twitter, masterpeterldn. Those are my main channels. And of course, you will find me on fetish.com as well, occasionally getting involved in interesting chats in the community. Amazing. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for being here. This was so really insightful. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So that was Master Peter. Yeah, I think that was really woke and profound. I couldn't have said anything better myself. So check out Master Peter's work. You're in amazing hands if you choose to go with him as a service provider. Let's maybe tease the next episode a bit. Sex magic. Sex magic. <laughs> so we are going a bit off the beaten track we'll speak about BDSM and sex magic if you don't know about sex magic which I have to admit I didn't until I came across Gabriella Hurstick's work it's magic with a K very important all about channeling your energy and intention towards a specific goal and who knows magic may happen yeah we'll be talking to Gabriella. she's a real LA based witch and she'll explain to us about morning rituals, setting intentions, and why it's really okay to hex a rapist. And Gabriella talks incorporating S&M into your sex magic rituals. So really not one to be missed. It's something we've been very excited to present for a while. So we'll see you next episode. And for now, keep it kinky. Keep it kinky. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Spanky Next on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at Spanky Next Podcast. If you're looking to connect with people who share your kinks, sign up to fetish.com for free or download the Fet app from Google Play and the App Store. And for anyone looking to deepen their knowledge of kink, head to the BDSM training school on fetish.com and enroll in a course now. And last but not least, Shout out to our producer, Tim Smith.